Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terrence Siegel, the podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the past seven days and how we got here. On today's episode... I did not have sexual relations with that woman. When you hear somebody say, this is not about sex, it's about sex. Many presidents have done inappropriate things. I think it's appropriate for me as a United States Senator to say, Mr. President, you shouldn't do that. But that doesn't mean that I should vote to remove him from office. The yeas are 49, the nays are 51. But first, here's what happened in the world this week. Probably the biggest news this week is the same biggest news from last week, the coronavirus. Basically, this coronavirus came out of a seafood market in the city of Wuhan in China on New Year's Day. But since then, you know, in the last four weeks or so, the number of cases has absolutely exploded. And as of recording, there are over 9,800 cases around the world, and the number of deaths has also continued to creep up. This week, British Airways became the first international carrier to stop all flights to mainland China. But other countries around the world are planning to quarantine their citizens once they're evacuated from Wuhan. So Australia, for example, is planning to send them to a quarantine island that's somewhat ironically named Christmas Island which is usually reserved for banishing asylum seekers and convicted criminals. And here in the UK, about 150 British evacuees were flown out of Wuhan at the end of last week, and they'll be placed in quarantine for 14 days to see if anyone is exhibiting symptoms. So I talked about this on the pod last week. I spoke with medical historian Mark Honigsbaum, and he explained kind of the origins of this virus, what a coronavirus is, how this compares to the SARS epidemic of 2002, the Chinese government's response to the outbreak this time. So if you haven't listened to it yet, check it out. When you want something so much in life, and you work for it for years and years and years, when it actually arrives, it's almost difficult to believe. After three and a half years of alternating chaos and standstill, the UK officially left the EU on Friday. 
So this is a huge moment, of course. But um, on the other hand, there aren't that many things that actually changed at midnight on Friday. So here are some of them. The UK can't undo this step anymore. The only way that they could come back into the EU now would be to apply to get into the bloc. In the British government, the Department for Exiting the EU ceased to exist and uh, is replaced now with the Task Force Europe unit that will oversee the negotiations over the next year. A British passport no longer makes you an EU citizen. New passports issued this year for British nationals are going to be blue, and the European Union wording is going to be taken out. And finally, UK citizens living abroad lost their right to vote in European elections or run for office. So as I said last week, the clock has now started ticking for the UK to negotiate a new trade deal with the EU, now that it's a separate entity outside of the bloc. So they need to get something ratified by January 2021, or they'll exit this transition period without a trade deal. Israel's longest-serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, was officially indicted by Israel's attorney general on Wednesday. So there are three charges levied against him, and they basically amount to pocketing expensive gifts, mostly in the form of champagne and cigars from two businessmen, to the total of about a quarter of a million dollars worth of kickback gifts, and bribing a newspaper and bribing a media website to give the prime minister more favorable coverage. These indictments have actually been a long time coming. The Israeli police started investigating Netanyahu back in October. And on New Year's Day, the prime minister submitted a request for immunity to parliament as a way to block these approaching charges. And maybe the strangest part of all this is the fact that since neither Netanyahu or his rival Benny Gantz were able to win a majority in the election in September, the prosecutions against Netanyahu are going to start as voters head to the polls for yet another election in March, the third election in Israel in a year. But it could take months for Netanyahu's trial to actually start. And even if he's convicted, he wouldn't be required to step down as prime minister until the appeals process was exhausted, and that could take years. And with that, it's time for this week's Deep Dive. The impeachment trial of President Trump has been going on for two weeks now. And on Friday, the only really undetermined piece of the whole proceeding was finally resolved, whether to call witnesses or new evidence. The yeas are 49. The nays are 51. The motion is not agreed to. On the slimmest of margins, 51 to 49, the Senate voted not to call any witnesses or bring forward any new evidence. So this means that next week we'll have two days of closing arguments on Monday and Tuesday from both sides, and then a vote on Wednesday on whether to convict or acquit the president. For those of you who haven't been following all that closely over the past couple weeks, it probably seems like the trial's already wrapping up before it barely started and without much happening. And that isn't really that far from the truth. But on the other hand, this is still a huge moment in American history. President Trump is only the third president in the history of America to be impeached. And he's only the second in modern history because the first was Andrew Johnson back in the 19th century. So today I'm going to walk you through everything you need to know about what happened in these last two weeks in this, in some ways, huge moment in American history. 
So I'm going to get to the case against President Trump in a second, but I actually covered that in the teaser episode, Trump's impeachment. So if you haven't listened to that, please check it out first. But I'm going to start with this very unusual trial, this Senate trial. So like I said, this is only the second time a president's been impeached in modern history, which means that the first time it happened in 1999 against President Bill Clinton, it was a totally novel idea in some ways. I mean, there was really no precedent that the lawmakers could go to at that point to figure out what a Senate trial would look like because one hadn't happened in 100 years. So in 1999, they basically invented what a Senate impeachment trial would look like. And that trial and the way that it was conducted and the way that the charges against Bill Clinton were understood, it's actually really helpful for understanding what is happening this time and to give us context in the case against President Trump. All right, so here are the basics. The case is prosecuted, so the case against the president is argued by a group called the House Managers. So they're basically lawmakers from the House of Representatives from the opposite party to the president. The case is defended by whomever, essentially, but it's going to be some extremely good lawyers that the president can hire. In this case, Trump hired a whole team of lawyers, actually, but most notably, he hired Ken Starr, who was one of the prosecutors against Bill Clinton back in the day, and Alan Dershowitz, who is a celebrity lawyer who defended O.J. Simpson against murder charges successfully. So both of them, very, very famous top lawyers. The case is presided over by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, And then it's adjudicated by 100 jurors who are the 100 senators from the Senate. Okay, so that's the basic structure. And then it came down to the, back in 1999, the Senate Majority Leader and the Senate Minority Leader to figure out what the actual rules of the trial should probably be. And they decided that they would have 24 hours of arguments from each side, prosecutors and the defendant followed by 16 hours of questions from the senators. And the senators would ask questions to either side, to the prosecutors or the defendant, by writing them down on note cards and passing them to the chief justice. After all that was done, they would then come to the question of, should witnesses be allowed in the trial? So, so far, everything I've said applies to both trials, the Clinton trial of 1999 and the Trump trial of 2020. And now we get to the first huge difference between the two trials, the witnesses. In the Clinton trial, they agreed to call three witnesses to testify as part of the Senate trial. And as I said, in the Trump trial, there will be no witnesses. And the reason for that basically, well, there's a lot of reasons, but it's because the two cases against President Trump and against former President Bill Clinton are, of course, very, very different. So here I'm going to explain what the cases are. In 1998, independent prosecutor Ken Starr was investigating President Bill Clinton under pretty much unrelated charges when he discovered a shocking allegation that the president had engaged in a sexual affair with a 23-year-old intern named Monica Lewinsky. When the president was accused of this, he famously refuted it. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Not only did he say this to the American people, but he said this to a grand jury. And it was later proven that this was a lie. 
There was DNA evidence on Monica Lewinsky's dress and you know her testimony and the testimony of others as well that proved beyond any doubt that Bill Clinton had actually engaged in a sexual affair with Monica Lewinsky. This means that he lied to a grand jury, which means he committed perjury. He also, according to the allegations, tried to persuade witnesses like Lewinsky herself and others to lie and deny that the affair had happened. So according to lawmakers in the House of Representatives at the time, that amounted to obstruction of justice. And President Bill Clinton was impeached on two charges, perjury, lying to a grand jury, and obstruction of justice. And he became the first president in modern history to get impeached. So in some ways, it was similar to what's happening now with President Trump. In the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, there were enough votes to impeach. But in the Senate, Republicans did not have enough votes to be able to convict and remove Clinton from office on their own. They would need a lot of Democrats to join their team in order to actually convict him. And that was pretty unlikely. So pretty similar to Trump's situation. One difference, though, is that despite lying to a grand jury and committing perjury, Bill Clinton and his administration didn't really interfere with the impeachment inquiry. They did hand over documents. They allowed Lewinsky and others to testify and things like that. So by the time the trial opened in the Senate, essentially all of the witnesses who were relevant to the case and all of the evidence relevant to the case had already been unearthed and the witnesses had already been heard from. So there was really no need to hear from new witnesses, although they would hear from witnesses who had already been called in the House, three of them in total, including Lewinsky, of course. Okay, so now the case against President Trump. Most of us know at this point that Trump had a now infamous phone call with the president of Ukraine over the summer. On this call, he told the president of Ukraine that he wanted investigations against Joe Biden, the former vice president and his likely rival in 2020. He wanted investigations against him and his son Hunter Biden to be opened. And he didn't say this on the phone call, but the allegation against Trump is that he was withholding both security aid and a meeting with the president of Ukraine until they announced investigations into his political rival. When these allegations came to light and the impeachment inquiry started in the House of Representatives, the Trump administration from the very beginning said that they would absolutely not cooperate with this inquiry, which they saw as totally corrupt and a witch hunt. And they absolutely stonewalled the House Intelligence Committee. They stopped a lot of really important witnesses from testifying, and they refused to hand over a lot of documents. So this is why the question of calling witnesses in the Trump trial is a really different question from what it was in 1999 in the Clinton trial. In the Trump case, there's actually witnesses that have firsthand knowledge of the phone call of Trump's relationship with the Ukrainian president that we haven't heard from yet. Most importantly, John Bolton, the former national security advisor. We have a witness with firsthand evidence of the president's actions for which he is on trial. He is ready and willing to testify. How can Senate Republicans not vote to call that witness and request his documents? The House did ask him to testify in the impeachment inquiry, but President Trump and his administration told him not to. In the past few weeks, John Bolton said that if subpoenaed, he would be willing to testify in the Senate trial. And even more interesting, John Bolton, like everybody else who used to work for the Trump administration, is writing a tell-all book about his experience in the White House, and excerpts of the book have been leaked to the media. 
If there was ever even a shred of logic left to not hear witnesses and review the documents, Mr. Bolton's book just erased it. So in the book, he corroborates the central claim of the impeachment inquiry, which says that President Trump withheld security aid to Ukraine until such time that Ukraine announced investigations against some of his political rivals, including Joe Biden. It's a really, really damning potential testimony. And he was definitely the most important witness that the Democrats were hoping to call on Friday when they had a vote for calling new witnesses. But as I said, that vote failed. So no witnesses will be called in this trial. Okay, so now we get to the most important difference and the kind of fascinating way that these two trials diverge. So once again, the charges, right? So there's two charges against each president. In the case of President Clinton, the charges were perjury, lying to a grand jury, and obstruction of justice because he was basically tampering with the witnesses, trying to intimidate them to deny the allegations. For President Trump, the two charges are abuse of power for using his position as president to intimidate a weak foreign power into opening investigations into his political rivals while he withheld security aid, and obstruction of Congress because once the impeachment inquiry opened, Trump and the administration did everything in their power to stop the investigation from going forward. So in order for a president to be impeached and removed from office, and I should say also, when we use the word impeach, and this is a common misunderstanding, but impeach means to formally charge a president or someone in the executive branch with a crime. It doesn't mean to convict them. It doesn't mean to remove them from office. It just means they've been charged with a crime. So President Trump has been impeached, even though in all likelihood he's not going to be convicted. Same with President Clinton. He wasn't convicted or removed, but he was impeached. Okay, so how do you decide if something is impeachable, if something is worthy of convicting a president and removing them from office? It all comes down to one line in the United States Constitution. In the Constitution, it says, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So neither Clinton or Trump were accused of bribery or treason. They were both accused of high crimes and misdemeanors. And the question then is, what does that mean? What qualifies as a high crime or high misdemeanor? And people strongly disagree on what the Founding Fathers meant when they wrote those words over 200 years ago. What's a high crime? How about if an important person hurts somebody of low means? It's not very scholarly, but I think it's a truth. That was South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham speaking at Clinton's impeachment trial. The words high crimes and misdemeanors refer to abuse of the office of the presidency for personal advantage or to corrupt the electoral process or to subvert the national security of the United States. There's no mystery about the words high crimes and misdemeanors. That was constitutional scholar Noah Feldman speaking at Trump's impeachment inquiry. So in both cases, you could say that the opposing party has exploited the vagueness of these words to make a case for why what the president did was an impeachable offense. So in the case of Clinton, the argument in favor of impeaching him said that he committed a crime. He committed a crime of perjury. And that means that he should be impeached and removed from office. 
the defense said that while that's a crime, it's not a high crime. It's not really associated with government. What it comes down to is... When you hear somebody say, this is not about sex, it's about sex. The president suffered a terrible moral lapse. That was Senator Dale Bumpers, one of Clinton's House managers. Okay, so in the Clinton case, it's a crime, but it doesn't have anything to do with his governmental duties, so the defense says it's not impeachable. In Trump's case, the lawyers took basically exactly the opposite approach. The case that Trump's lawyers are making is that while what Trump did was inappropriate, maybe approaching a gray area of how he's supposed to wield his power as president, it wasn't a crime. He didn't commit any actual illegal crime in pressuring Ukraine in the way he did. Therefore, it can't be impeachable. But it's worth noting that a lot of scholars disagree with that interpretation of Congress's ability to impeach a sitting president. Instead, the president just needs to be doing something that's an abuse of power. It's how a lot of scholars interpret that sentence of the Constitution. But on the other hand, it does say high crimes and high misdemeanors. So if the president hasn't actually done anything illegal, some would say that they haven't committed an impeachable offense. And that's what Trump's lawyers are saying. After all is said and done, probably the biggest similarity between these two cases is simply the fact that neither of them is going to result in convictions. President Trump, it's almost impossible to imagine, is actually going to be convicted and removed from office on Wednesday. He's going to be acquitted. In 1999, when Clinton was acquitted, it boosted his popularity and it helped in the midterm elections to win seats for Democrats. But in Clinton's case, most Americans did not want Clinton impeached and removed from office. In fact, about two-thirds of the country were not in favor of his impeachment at all. And that's pretty different from the case with Trump, where the country is split basically 50-50, with 50% in favor of his removal from office, but 50% not in favor of this. Also, in Clinton's case, he was in his second term as president. He wasn't facing a re-election. So it's unclear right now what this will actually do for President Trump. Will Trump be seen as a vindicated victim or as a crook who slipped through the hands of justice? We really won't know until the election in November. All right, and that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Taryn Siegel.